Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, world. Welcome once again to Tuesday Talk with Key West Lou. I am your host, Louis Patron. Well, another exciting week. They're all exciting with Donald Trump representing the United States and doing this, that, and everything else. Uh, there's news, multitudes, tons of news every day coming at you from every direction. We hear it all on the media. I like sometimes on the show, and I try to bring up some issues or topics that are not generally what you hear on the television set, in the newspapers, or through the magazines. And tonight I'm going to try to do a little bit of that, too, because there are other things happening which we should know about, but Trump just takes everything else away. He, he blocks out everything else. There's going to be a lot of Trump here tonight, too. It can't be helped, but you're going to find some different topics. And the one I open with is very different. I'm going to talk about public urinals, public urinals. Uh, And I'm going to talk about public urinals in Paris and Berlin. Paris has had a problem. Men are peeing in the streets. Berlin has the same problem. Not women, men are peeing in the streets of Paris. They're peeing in the streets, I'm slapping as I tell you this, uh, of Berlin. And it's public peeing. And so Paris has set up right now 22 public urinals. They're in the street. The men go up to this, and I'll describe it for you, and they pee in front of everyone. Okay? They can smile as you walk by, male, female, dogs, whatever. And what they've done is they've taken, they colored this box red. It's about two feet by three feet, and it stands on a round pole, maybe two or three inches in diameter. And the man walks up to it, pulls down a zipper, pulls out his private, and there's a big hole, and he pees into the hole. And this is to discourage and stop public peeing in the streets of Paris by men, not women again. Now, it's public. Ain't no question about it, okay? The man just stands up and goes. Well, now we come to, and it's, they're not happy with it. Not everyone's happy with it in Paris. The public administration of Paris is happy. But, for example, one of these things is near the, Notre, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Another, there's that couple on the Seine River. Uh, they've got one near a school. And so the people say, this is, you know, this ain't quite right, but they don't know how to resolve the problem. They arrested these people. It didn't work. Uh, they're described, by the way, as echo-friendly open-air urinals. Echo-friendly open-air urinals. Now, we go to Berlin. Berlin's got the same problem. You know, these European men in big cities, they're supposed to have class. I don't know. But they're peeing in the streets. Their solution is a bit different. Uh, They are, what I'm going to describe to you is described by the Germans as gender-neutral toilets. Gender-neutral toilets. They take into account gender equality gender equality, and public toilets. And what they are is these will be enclosed private toilets. They'll be little buildings, and uh, both sexes use them. They're unisex or whatever they call these when we see them in our airports and restaurants now. Uh, But inside, these are strictly, by the way, the ones in Paris and the ones in Berlin are strictly for being, can't do number two in them. I don't know where you go for number two, but number two isn't the problem. 
And inside the ones in Berlin, and this is the conclusion of a study, and this is what they're in the process of building or are going to build, are going to be the urinals that men use in, in bathrooms, you know, these things that stand up against the wall. A man stands up, pulls his private out and pees. Uh, these are going to be, rather than go from your chest to the ground, they're going to be the type that go from your chest to just between your, above your knees. Uh, and you just stand up and you pee. What they're going to do is they're going to take the bottom part of this, what has previously been solely a male urinal, bring it out a little bit, and as the men stand up to pee, the women will stand up to pee. Now, yes, women will be expecting Berlin. They're crazy over there. To, what they did with prostitution was wild. I wrote an article on this about 10 years ago. I'm not going to get into it tonight. But the women will be required to stand and pee. They're going to walk up to this thing, pull up their dress, drop their pants, drop their panties, whatever they've got going, and they pee. <laughs> and there's going to be a guy standing next to them peeing and vice versa. Uh I don't know how this is going to go over publicly, <laughs> but that's what they're doing because they have a problem in Paris and Berlin of men being in the streets. This is how they solved it in Paris. And in Germany and Berlin, they're trying to save a buck so women can use these things too, though they're not guilty of the crime that brought it on. And the German government feels there should be gender equality when it comes to public toilets. It's a good way to start. Better than Donald Trump. I want to talk about the car, C-A-R-R, fire in California. The fire that has been described as the sixth most destructive wildfire in the history of California. The sixth most destructive wildfire in the history of California. And it also is the fire that eliminated most of the Bedslow family. I told you about them last week. I've written about them also. I have also talked about them on my uh, Facebook show, Key West Lou Live, in the morning. It's the Bedslow family, Ed Bledslow, uh, grandfather, uh, his wife Melody. They're both in their 70s. They're raising their great-grandchildren, James 5, Emily 4. Uh, the fire was nowhere near them. They lived in California with neighbors. The fire wasn't near them. No one told them to evacuate. They, they gave no thought to the fire being near them. It wasn't near them at all. He had to go to the doctor. He went to the doctor. His wife calls on the cell phone. The fire's coming at us. He rushes home, doesn't get there in time, couldn't have done anything if he did. He's the last seconds of his wife's life and the great-grandchildren. He's on the cell phone with them. The last one he talked to on the cell phone was his grandson, great-grandson James, five years old, who says, Papa, hurry up. The fire's coming through the door. And that's the last he heard of any of his family. Now, I've already told you this, and it's sad. It's got to bring tears to your eyes. It's a, it's a crusher. How did this fire begin? It's interesting how the fire began, and that's the thrust of tonight's story on the car fire. Someone was driving along the road in the forest, and got a flat tire. A flat tire caused this massive fire. A flat tire killed his family because the car got a flat tire. The rim scraped the asphalt road. A rim scraped the asphalt road. The sparks from the rim on the asphalt road shot out 
and ignited the brush, the dry brush on the side of the road. And from that comes the sixth most destructive fire in the history of California. Let's talk about Manfort. Manfort's trial in effect ended today. Summing up tomorrow by the attorneys, the charge to the jury by the judge. By late afternoon, I'm assuming that the jury will get the case to decide. They'll spend a few days at it and make their decision. The reason I'm talking about the Manafort uh, trial tonight is that no defense was put on by his attorneys. Manafort and his attorneys decided not to put on a defense. Uh, They're going to the jury based on the proof that the prosecution put in, and they're assuming that they did sufficient damage on cross-examination that the prosecution will not meet its burden of proof, which is proving guilt by a reasonable doubt. Now, as a lawyer spent his life in the courtroom, let me tell you, reasonable doubt's a heavy burden. It's not, you know, he could be guilty, he may be guilty, maybe yes, maybe no, sort of 50-50. He's got to be guilty beyond the reasonable doubt, which means there can't be any thought in your mind he isn't guilty, okay? And it's a tough burden that the prosecution has, and they should have it. Well, And there's nothing wrong. In most of these trials, criminal trials, uh, sometimes the defense says, we don't want to put in a defense because between us girls, your client's guilty. (laughs) And they're going to kill him if you put him on the stand, okay? Uh, So you don't do it. But, you you know, you take the honorable position before the jury. They didn't prove anything. That's why we didn't put them on. The judge will charge you tomorrow that that was his right not to be on there because the burden of proof is on the prosecution. The state or the federal government must prove he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay? And then if you, you've got a case, I thought sometimes in these cases, I did criminal work when I was younger, I, I, my first case I ever tried was a murder case, believe it or not. Three and, five and a half weeks on trial. Two weeks out of two weeks, I was admitted to the bar. I'm assigned to a murder first case in New York State. What a disgrace! My lawyer had a poor client, a poor attorney, uh, but I got him off. I got him off. Five and a half weeks on trial. Didn't know what the hell I was doing, but we won. Uh, I didn't put the guy on though in that case. We did it by cross examination. Now, there is a feeling, though, I think, because I talk to jurors, there is a feeling amongst jurors that if a man is innocent, he will want to tell his story, and he will take the stand, and they want to hear what he has to say. So, you know, it's a difficult thing. You've got to make sure if you don't put your client on the stand that you did the best possible job in the world, and you got a shot at beating this unreasonable doubt. Uh, And that's the way it goes. Just wanted to explain how things are going today and tomorrow in the Manafort trial. Moving on now, uh, what, who said, I don't know who, came out of some English play in the 1700s. Listen to my words. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. A woman rejected in love is angry and dangerous. Ain't no question about it. We all know. Who am I talking about? You got it. Amorosa Manigault Newman. Uh, She is going to kill Donald Trump. I mean, other things are going to come out of the woodwork, but she's coming from left field, and I I don't think she's coming badly from left field. 
She has been with Donald Trump, working with him for 15 years. She first started with him on The Apprentice. She's black. She's black, black. She's a beauty, an absolute beauty. She obviously is a very smart woman. We've all watched her on TV the last several days. She got fired. Donald Trump fired her after 15 years. He put her in the White House. She was the only black person working in the West Wing of the White House because Trump's a racist. He's a bigot. But for some reason, he liked her, okay? But he canned her. He had her fired. He had Kelly do it like I did. No, oh my God, but he didn't do anything to make it right. Well, she's got tapes. This woman so far, she's come up with five or six tapes. And each one makes Trump look a little bit worse each day. At first, I thought this woman was a nut. And so did everyone else, but now people are starting to say, you can see the, the political pundits, well, you know, she's got this on tape so far, and she's got that on tape. She don't talk about it unless it's on tape, okay? My thought was, up until the last few days, that this was a woman scorned. For Trump to keep her for 15 years, knowing that he's a womanizer, misogynist, I assume they were having a sexual relationship. And at some point, the big thing that was going to come out of her book that just got published yesterday came out of today, uh, and out of all these interviews on TV promoting the book, that they had a sexual relationship, which would make Trump look like a schmuck in front of the world or in front of the citizens of the United States because he just did it too much. He doesn't respect women, et cetera, et cetera. He's a philanderer. So that being the case, that may still come out. I don't know. I'm just assuming they must have had a sexual relationship. Again, because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Today, she's on television starting this morning on MSNBC and on every show today. They're going to have her on every day, all day, for the next week or two. She comes up with, and she's got a tape for this, she says. We can't hear the tapes, though, because she's already testified before Mueller's group. He's had her in. She's been for the grand jury, okay? Uh, she could write a book, but there's certain things she can't talk about. Like, do you have tape for this? Well, the suggestion is she has the tape, but she can't talk about it. So let's take it from there today. She says that Donald Trump knew about Hillary's emails. You know, he's always making a big deal out of her emails. Jail her, jail her, jail her. Remember during the campaign? Even now he takes us back. Let's reopen Hillary in the emails. That's where the, the special prosecutor should be going. Well, she says that he knew all about Hillary's emails before the emails were even leaked by WikiLeaks. Even leaked by WikiLeaks. Now, what does that mean? Unquestionably, that has to mean that Trump knew, Trump had a Russian connection to have that information way before it was leaked by WikiLeaks. Because he's always claimed he never heard of it till the whole world heard about it with WikiLeaks. Couldn't be. She says, no, he knew before. He knew it before it came out by WikiLeaks. And the only way he could know it, because Russia had that information, and was through a Russian relationship of some sort. Going to hurt him badly if such is the case. What I'm going to talk about now, I'm not sure is accurate. 
This bothers the hell out of me what I'm going to share with you now. But it would be wrong not to share it. But I, I am telling you up front, I do not know if it's accurate. And I wonder what I am going to share. If it's something that, because we know Russia is already implanting things uh, on our computers and in the Internet to affect the election coming up in November and what's being done. And I don't know why they do what they do, what, what certain things they, they implant. But this may be just something Russia did. I don't know. I came across this today. What I came across today, I haven't heard anywhere on the media at all. At all. The newspapers aren't talking about the TV shows, the Internet. Nobody's talking about it. So I found it. I found a story someplace. And here's the story. Peter Strusk. He is the FBI agent that Trump had fired this week, the special FBI agent, uh, the one who was working for Mueller and had been was part of the team investigating Trump at the beginning of this Russian investigation. And his girlfriend was an employee of the FBI, too, and they'd emailed back and forth. They were in love. He was cheating on his wife. And he was saying, this Trump's no good in effect, and we're going to get him, et cetera, et cetera. And this all came out. Mueller immediately fired him at the time. Uh, well, he's already testified before Congress openly under oath, and he says, yeah, I did that, but it didn't affect my judgment because I've been in the FBI 26 years. These things don't affect my judgment. I was just sharing a personal feeling that does not affect my work. So now he's no longer a federal employee, we all think. But what I came across today said he's still a federal employee because he worked simultaneously for the FBI and the CIA. He was, in effect, a double agent. Uh, and he's still working for the CIA. He only got fired by, from the FBI. When something like this happens, it's called sheep dipping. Sheep dipping. Sounds like defecation, but I don't know what it is. But sheep dipping, dipping means we're in, in a government situation involving intelligence people. They have alternate identities. They carry two identities in the work they do. Now, with the FBI, Stroke was Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI's Counterintelligence Division. That job's gone. He's canned. With the CIA, he is purported to be Section Chief, Section Chief of the CIA's Counter Espionage Group. CIA's Counter Espionage Group. Now, again, this came up today. I found it. It excites me. I don't know if it's true. I'm waiting for someone else to start talking about this tomorrow. Uh, and if it doesn't pop up tomorrow or the next day, what I've just shared with you is false. But I'm qualifying my whole presentation of it with it could be an error, but if it isn't, it's amazing. I'll tell you why it's amazing. I, I, I'm sure these things go on. Two guys, a guy works, a person works two or three different agencies, but it's all interrelated. It's important to know because it means that Donald Trump didn't know, and Donald Trump's staff did not know. And what the hell kind, how smart is Donald Trump, and how smart and helpful are his staff if they didn't know? They're running our government. They should know these things. And that's that story. A grand jury for two years has done a study in the state of Pennsylvania. And the study was of the Catholic Church. 
and the priests and the predator priests and what they were doing to the kids and everything else. And did the Catholic Church, the hierarchy of the church, meet its responsibilities? Did they chastise the priests? Did they throw them out of the order? Did they turn them into the authorities? What they did and didn't do? And the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, the highest court, ordered this week that the grand jury report be made public. And so I'm going to share with you the grand jury report. It's very simple. It says that the Catholic Church, over a period for, for two decades, 20 years, protected more than 300 predator priests, protected more than 300 predator trees, priests, I'm sorry, involved were over 1,000 children, all victims, 1,000 children. And where did they get this information? 300 predator priests, 1,000-plus children from the Catholic Church's own records, from the Catholic Church's own records. Wow. And something else came up that I wasn't aware of. You may have been. I thought these were all boys. Turns out they were boys and girls. Now, we're going to talk about assassinations. You would think, you know, foreign countries are out there killing people. Uh, We know that Kim from North Korea, I mean, he killed his own family in another country. They poison people. They gas people. They do do this to them, that to them. Putin's one of the biggest assassinators in the world. He assassinates his enemies all over the world, most recently in London and Paris. And there are other dictators, authoritarian figures who do the same thing. Uh, And I'm not saying Trump does it, and I'm not saying we do it, but I'm going to say who does do it, and you're going to be shocked. The world's leader in assassinations, believe it or not, is Israel. Israel is the leader in assassinations, okay? In the last 10 years, Israel has killed more people than any other country since World War II. 800 in the last 10 years alone, okay? And the pace is picking up. And what they do to kill the enemies of Israel, and they go everywhere to kill them, not just Israel. They use the Mossad, M-O-S-S-A-D, the Mossad, whatever way you pronounce it. They are Israeli secret agents. Now, that doesn't bother me as much as it bothers me that the leader, the Donald Trump of Israel, is Netanyahu. I don't like Netanyahu. I haven't liked him for years. He has gone from being... A typical Israeli leader, a man to be admired. He's now become authoritative. I think he'd like to be prime minister or president of Israel forever, just like Donald Trump would like to be of the United States and the guy in Turkey for the rest of his life. And Kim's already got it, and Putin's probably going to have it. Uh, he just does these things at random. He orders these deaths. I, I think the guy's become He's off his whack. He's crazy. He, he wants to be powerful. Everybody wants to be powerful, powerful. He says he's protecting Israel. I think he's shaming Israel. There's a line we draw, okay? Uh, he's as bad as Hitler was. I've got to say it this way. I'm sorry. 
Hitler killed the Jews by the millions. He isn't doing it by the millions. But he's doing dirty, rotten things like the Nazis did, and he shouldn't be doing. And he's doing rotten, dirty things like Russia does and North Korea. He shouldn't be doing that. And like the work they's doing now in the Philippines. This is Israel, the democracy of the Middle East. We have helped them since day one when they were born in 46 or 47. It's wrong what he's doing, okay? Now, to show, and he's getting his nose involved in things where they shouldn't be. Uh, most recently, in the past 10 days, let's say, uh, he wants to go to war with Iran. And he wants us to join him in a war with Iran. And when you think about, about Donald Trump, who broke the agreement that the United States had with Iran to prevent them from developing nuclear weapons any further for the next 15 years, which now frees, frees Iran to do what they want. Uh, he says, we got to get, get Iran. That's what Netanyahu is telling his buddy Donald Trump, and I fear, because uh, he's, Trump a couple of weeks ago was saying, you know, he, you, you don't do what we want. We're just going to come over and take care of you. I'm Donald Trump. I'm going to get you. Just like he's going to get Kim. Kim made such an asshole out of Trump, didn't he? Wild. Anyhow, he's looking for a war, a reason to go to war with Iran, and he wants our support in that war, and he believes he will get it through Donald Trump. He is also right now threatening to deploy Israeli military to Yemen. They don't need him in Yemen. We've got to get people the hell out of Yemen. That's why the Yemen people are dying like crazy. Also, the Syri in Syria, the Syrian military claims it recently shot down two Israeli reconnaissance drones over Damascus. Netanyahu says, if so, it was a mistake. We meant to send them over Iran. Guy's going to get us in trouble. He wants to get in trouble. And these are the little things. These are the sparks. This is the rim on the asphalt road that shoots off a spark that starts one of the greatest conflagrations, fire conflagrations California has ever seen. It takes a little thing, an act by someone like Israel that can start a world war in the a war in the Middle East that'll go all over Asia, Europe, etc., and come over here. Okay, going into recession. One of the richest families in the world, if not the richest family, is the Rothschild family. The Rothschild family. They're over in Europe. They live. And the head of the family is Lord. I think they're English. Lord Jacob Rothschild. And they know money. These people know money. They got money. They got money. They're legendary. Uh, their family and finance is very legendary. And here's what Lord Rothschild has said recently. He's concerned. He says, Quote, the geopolitical situation is the most dangerous since World War II. The geopolitical situation is the most dangerous since World War II. He says, and I quote, economic growth is no means assured. Economic growth is no means assured. He claims that geopolitical problems are widespread and are proving increasingly difficult to resolve. Now, today... Uh, the, we created an economic system after World War II. All the nations, uh, all the democratic nations created uh, an order. They worked together. They, you know, they said, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna exchange products together. We're going to do business together. We're going to grow together. We're going to protect each other together. We all work for each other. That is in jeopardy, he says. That's in je that which made profit. 
for everyone that participated is now in jeopardy. It may be on its last leg, and it may be the time is gone to correct it. The 10-year bullish market that started in 2008, the longest market in modern times, 10-year bullish market, he says is going to go down. It's, on, it's going to capitulate in the next year, okay? And it's going to have a meltdown like we've never had. And here are the three reasons why, three primary reasons. The U.S.-China trade war. The U.S.-China trade war, he says, the two biggest nations in the world, the two greatest economic nations in the world cannot fight each other in a tariff war because whatever they do affects the rest of the world. Their economies will weaken and be destroyed, and so will everyone else's, and we're going to see a worldwide recession. There's a Eurozone crisis he's concerned with, and that's because the European countries are in debt too much. We're in debt too much. China's in debt too much. But we can handle it the way we operate. The Euro nations can't handle it, and they're going to go down the tubes one by one in a short period of a year. And there is a lack of a common approach to resolve problems. It's Trump's way. It's Putin's way. It's this one's way. It isn't going to work that way. And he says that uh, there's going to be an gradual unwinding of globalization in the wake of President Trump that has made cooperation today much more difficult. That's my show for tonight. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you for joining me. I love doing the show. I'm glad that you joined me. I'm going to say it again. I've been saying it every week. My numbers go up every week with this show. I, I get all excited. I love it. i got to be honest. I'm glad more and more people listen to it, take the time to listen to it. Uh, I'm doing T. West Lou live on Facebook every morning, two, three, four-minute shot about one, an issue like one of the things I talked about tonight. You might enjoy listening to a T. West Lou live. Berman and me still selling. Not as good as it did when it first got published, but if you enjoy reading about the hurricane that hit here, Irma and me, it's available on Amazon.com. Thank you again for joining me. I look forward to being with you next week.